Hey, Rich, you said today's episode was about crowded house, right? Yes, Mike, it is, but I think you got the wrong idea about the word house. What, are they more of an acid house band? <sighs> this is Discord and Rhyme. <laughs> everybody welcome to discord and rhyme a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song it is time for the roll call rich benel ben marlin and amanda rogers so this week's host ben is in the house what album do you have for us ben it's house music my favorite <laughs> type of music with the beats and dancing and stuff mm -hmm. uh, no i have crowded house by crowded house terrific choice ben so how far do you go back with this album tell us your personal history and what led you to choose it for this week's episode yeah this one goes way back for me back to about middle school um at some point on a miami radio station i heard the song don't dream it's over from this album i didn't know who sang it i didn't pay attention to what the words were I didn't even think to open the Shazam app on the rotary dial phone on our kitchen wall, but I was absolutely <laughs> entranced by the song. And then I didn't hear it again for a while after that, but it stayed in the back of my mind like like a ghostly, gorgeous apparition that I may or may not have heard. Uh, a quick tangent for our kids in the audience. For most of the history of recorded music, this is what it was like if you didn't know a song. You couldn't look it up on Google. Even the, uh, the predatory ad-filled lyric sites on the internet didn't exist because there was no internet yet. You could call the DJ and ask, you know, what was that song that went, um... But they had the power and often the inclination to humiliate you in front of the entire city. So I never tried that. That is a true story. <laughs> Luckily, one night at home a few months later, Don't Dream It's Over came on the radio again. And I have a vivid memory of just bolting out of my seat, sprinting across our house towards my boombox, nearly knocking over my sister in the process, and pressing record so that I'd get it on a cassette. And finally, I had it. Like Teddy Roosevelt bagging a rhino and mounting its head above the White House fireplace. <laughs> exactly like that. Also, I'm sorry to my sister, and thank you, Karen, for supporting us on Patreon each month, despite that and so many other things over the years. <laughs> thank you, Karen. I don't think I heard any other Crowded House songs besides that one for the next several years, but in college, I found their debut album, which is stuffed with songs that are almost as good as Don't Dream It's Over, and it became one of my all-time favorite albums, something I was just guaranteed to enjoy anytime I played it. It's been one of my favorite albums since then. So, Amanda, how about you? You have an exhaustive history with Crowded House, right? Tell us all about it. <laughs> I really do. It goes back about two entire weeks. <laughs> well, time is meaningless now. It's true. Uh, yeah, up until a couple of weeks ago, I knew three Crowded House songs. Don't Dream It's Over, which I knew was them. Something So Strong, which I thought was Nick Kershaw. And Weather With You, which I thought was Midnight Oil. <laughs> It does kind of sound like them. If Midnight Oil did weather with you, it would be about acid rain and how corporations are causing that. And so <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be as fun, I think. Anywhere you go, always take the pollution with you. 
Yeah. <laughs> so we are mining new levels of doofus noob territory here, but I'm going to do my best. Yeah, I am also kind of a doofus noob. I don't have much of a history with me, with Crowded House and Neil Finn. Uh, I first heard Don't Dream It's Over on Pop Up Video, the uh, f- the favorite show of people oh, wow. in our age cohort. And I oh, checked out their album. It was on Pop Up Video, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I checked out their album Woodface from the library and I enjoyed it. And the local 80s alternative station used to play the Split Ends song, I Got You, pretty regularly. And Split Ends is the band that preceded Crowded House. I got you. That's all I want. I will forget. That's a whole lot. I don't go out. Not now that you're in. Sometimes we shout. But I never really dug too deep into their music until now, just for whatever reason. Uh, my father-in-law, on the other hand, is a big fan of Crowded House and a whole bunch of other New Zealand music. And I think he got into that whole musical scene when he used to travel to Australia and New Zealand on business trips. So this episode goes out to him. Awesome. So, Ben, tell us the story of how Neil Finn's house became a crowded house. <laughs> <laughs> start this one philosophically before I get into the band and the album we'll be talking about whatever those are. Uh, So let me get into my metaphorical toga here. Specifically, I want to talk about melodies. The greatness of a crowded house song can be hard to describe because melodies are hard to describe. Every pop song has a melody, and if you hear one on the radio, it's probably got a catchy melody for it to have gotten that far. Unless it was Nookie by Limp Bizkit. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. You're right. (laughs) Why did you have to just why? <laughs> now we need a clip. No, we don't need a clip. <laughs> but how do you say that a melody is really, really good, like better than most, you know, pretty and striking and memorable without just using those barely descriptive, utterly unscientific adjectives like good and better? How do we separate melodies by Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney from the literally thousands of catchy radio hits that have been out there. What's our vocabulary for differentiating a catchy Hootie and the Blowfish melody from a catchy Elton John melody, a Dave Clark Five melody from a Beatles melody, Green Day strumming Wake Me Up When September Ends from Crowded House strumming Weather With You? Do we say it's one's good and the other's great, really good, 
versus great, great, and the other one's really great. We could bring in Tony the Tiger if we wanted to, but even then, he's more enthusiastic than nuanced. <laughs> Sadly, our words fail us in this area, or at least mine fail me. Hell, how do you even distinguish between a run-of-the-mill great crowded house melody and then something so strong, which Amanda brought up before, which still lights up the airwaves decades later? One's catchy, the other is like really catchy. Like really. I think in defining a great melody, I'll paraphrase what Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said about pornography. Shit's off the chain, yo. <laughs> no, wait. I'll paraphrase that... Uh, what he said, I'll know it when I hear it. So sometimes you just know a melody is one for all time, even if you can't describe why. There are probably technical reasons for it, but that's the best I can do. So what I'm saying is I'm not even trying with this one. We're going to play <laughs> the clips and I'm going to give either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And you'll just have to take my word that I'm even doing that. Yeah, it's going to be our first half an hour long Discord and Rhyme episode. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to be as long as all the other podcasts out there, finally. <laughs> That's it. That is really interesting what you're saying about how, like, what does make a melody good? Because to a certain extent, that is quantifiable, but so much of it is entirely subjective. Like, a, a certain set of notes is going to hit one person completely differently from how it hits another person. And there's a lot that's just unique to each of us that goes into that. But for someone like Brian Wilson, who, whether he knew it or not, was using really sophisticated compositional techniques, you know, playing with something like um, God Only Knows, where each line of the verse is essentially in a different key. You know, that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that's really going to stick in your head. And then there's something a lot that's not necessarily that complicated and sophisticated like Crowded House tends to do, but still is an, it, just a total earworm that you can't get out of your head even if you wanted to. And I don't know why you would want to. But it's that is something I think about a lot too. Like, what exactly is it that makes one melody better or less good than another one? Well, I think in the case of Crowded House, I mean, I don't want to put too much uh, emphasis on Neil Finn, but it is really his band, and he has a very mellifluous yeah. voice. I've heard that word used to describe his voice mm, a yeah. lot, and I, I think that there's just like a particular character to it that helps like sell the melodies. Yeah, yeah, that's I a think big that's part true. of it too. And and I like what you're saying about the sophistication of a particular melody. But counterexample, I mean, Hootie and the Blowfish, who I like, yeah. I'm not, I'm not ragging on them, but they're not sophisticated, and yet they mm -hmm. do catchy melodies too. Yeah, I so agree. I'm, I like I'm them kind too. of back in the beginning, like sophisticated and unsophisticated can both be enjoyable and melodic and catchy. Absolutely, and you can completely, you can absolutely prefer the simpler one to the more complicated one. That because I mean, complexity doesn't necessarily equal quality or enjoyability. Mm -hmm. It's it's just a big mix of factors. And like I said, no two people are going to experience the same melody the same way. So let's talk about Crowded House. Crowded House is a spinoff uh, from the band Split Ends, which Rich talked about before. Uh, Split Ends was formed in 1972 in New Zealand. One of the founders of Split Ends was Tim Finn, who will show up later in our story. It took a few years and a few albums, but in 1977, Tim's younger brother, Neil, an ambitious and literate musician who had been performing live since his early teens, joined the band. Split ends were gigantic in that part of the world, especially in the early 1980s when they landed three straight albums at number one on the New Zealand and Australian charts. History never repeats, I tell my 
1984, there were two significant shifts in the split ends lineup. First of all, goofy, wild Australian Paul Hester came in on drums. And second, Tim Finn left his own band to pursue a solo career. Split Ends sidled along for one more album, which was creatively dominated by Neil Finn, before they called it quits at the end of 1984. The next year, Neil Finn and Paul Hester auditioned Australian bassist Nick Seymour for the new band they were forming, The Malanes. And that's who our episode is about, The Malanes. You've got three Malanes heads right here. <laughs> we're insane for the Malanes, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could go back and give them that one. The Malanes moved to Los Angeles, and they renamed themselves Crowded House because that's what they were staying in at the time, a small, crowded house. Their fans down under have since given them the nickname The Crowdies. Folks in the Commonwealth countries are just so good at coming up with these endearing, laid-back nicknames like that. We're rowdy for The Crowdies. Oh, <laughs> You're on fire, Rich. <laughs> Keep them coming. <laughs> the three Crowdies hooked up with producer Mitchell Froome, who in 1985 helped them create their first album, which we're going to talk about right now. All right, fellow diskies, let's go. <laughs> we're risky for the disky. Nah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before we get to the album, we have some new Patreon donors this week Jakob, Matthew, and John. Thanks a million to both of you and to all the rest of our sponsors who help us cover our operating costs so that we can remain stubbornly independent and not have to run third-party ads. As for the rest of you, we love you too. And if you want more Discord and Rhyme, <laughs> just go to patreon.com slash discordpod. We have a few reward levels for you there, including over 25 bonus episodes and a Discord and Rhyme sticker that you can display prominently wherever it would bring you the most joy. And one more thing, it's almost time for our annual Q&A episode. We have a few questions in the hopper that people have asked over the la over the past year and a few that people have sent in in the last couple of weeks. And if there's anything in particular you want to know, now is your chance to find out. So email discordpod at gmail.com or tweet us at discordpod with your inquiries related to music or podcast or whatever else is on your mind that we might have the answers to. We're very smart. Very, very smart. SMRT. <laughs> you can also contact us via those channels, even if you don't have any questions at all and just want to say hi. And with that, now it's time for Crowded House by Crowded House, which does not feature a song called Crowded House. It does have a song, though, called Mean to Me, which opens the album, track one. She came all the way from America. She had a blind day with destiny. And the sound of Tiawamoto had a truly sacred brain. Now her parents are divorced. And her friends committing suicide I cannot escape The first few verses of Mean to Me are crowded house in microcosm. Lush melody, intelligent lyrics, and it's more than a little cracked. Just after the beautiful guitar chords, Neil Finn is already singing about suicide and being in a padded cell, and he's squawking like a man cornered. I don't love the band because they're cracked, but it certainly keeps them interesting, and it keeps them from slipping into the soft rock that they frequently flirt with. Overall, this song is a horn-drenched, R&B-influenced rocker, straight-ahead 4-4 beat, with a powerful drum part from Paul Hester, and a rough vocal from Neil Finn that's closer to rock and roll than he usually gets. 
if it's not a world-beating classic like some of the songs we're going to discuss from here, it's still a punchy crowd-pleaser, and it's more interesting than most songs with that description. Well, so Neil Finn's lyrics are rarely directly about anything, but this is a exception. This one has a story that inspired it. So like the song captures Neil Finn at kind of an anxious transitional moment in his career because he, he was just out of split ends and he was touring with a New Zealand cover band called the Party Boys. And he was like having kind of a who am I and is this where I want to be existential moment. And at that time, an American fan who was studying abroad in New Zealand contacted his parents to get a chance to meet him backstage. And this encounter happened and it inspired the song. And it it was reportedly a pretty harmless meeting from what I've read. So the lyrics like saying that she should have been in a padded cell are a little mean. (laughs) But apparently she was really flattered to have inspired the song and to eventually become <laughs> part of the like crowded house mythos. And at any rate, like, the, yeah, the entire story is kind of a reminder that our heroes are, you know, humans with big dreams and even bigger anxieties, which I can definitely relate to. <laughs> but as for the song itself, I, I like it, but it feels like the kind of song that only really works at the beginning of an album. And it's actually mm-hmm. track four on the European edition. And I feel like it would totally just get lost. It would sink into the muck there. And um, I, I think that what does it for me is that really brief acapella intro, which I think is always a really clever way to open an album. And I actually have a couple of examples of songs that do that that I like. And the first one is uh, is Fountains of Wayne's Mexican Wine, which opens the album Welcome Interstate Managers. He was killed by a cellular phone explosion. They scattered his ashes across. Yeah, good connection there. Mm-hmm. And there's also the song No Action by Elvis Costello and the Attractions, which sets off the album this year's model like a bottle rocket. Sets off me too. <laughs> I don't want to kiss you. I don't want to touch. I don't want to see you because I don't miss you that much. No, I actually love that one. It is the only song on this year's model that I actually really love. Yeah, well, you're silly. <laughs> anyway, in the case of Mean to Me, uh, specifically, I love how quickly the song escalates. Like, they really just skip the build and just dump the entire ensemble onto you before you've had a chance to even catch your bearings in any way. It's not one of my favorites on the album, but it's a good opener. Well, first of all, the boss of the acapella intros is Super Trooper by ABBA. Super Trooper beams are gonna blind me. But I won't feel blue Like I always do Cause somewhere in the crowd there's I actually don't find this to be a terribly auspicious beginning. Hmm. Uh, The lyrics are clever. I like them a lot, especially how the phrase mean to me is used to mean a couple of different things in different places in the song. But I just don't like the sound of this very much. You know, the melody isn't as good as they're capable of, and the horns are downright annoying to me. I find (laughs) just the arrangement and the production of this one is it's a bit much. It's a little overstuffed. Um, they, They could have taken out like three elements and it would have improved the song, I think. So... This one does nothing for me, uh, so it's a really good thing. All of the rest of the album is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were mean to that song. I was. <laughs> no, this is far it. from one of my favorites on here. Well, let's go on to a much better song. So this is track two. It's called World Where You Live. Love that slap bass. Mm-hmm. I didn't even notice it's 
hard for me to pick out the bass on most of this album. This is one of the standouts, even on a standout album. Neil Finn was on fire here, writing one of his all-time great melodies. Dig how when he sings, do you climb into space, the melody cycles upward. Neil Finn, is that you? (laughs) (laughs) Sure is, mate. There's a term for that, which our friend and co-host John McFerrin could tell us in a second, but which I don't know when the, the words are describing what's going on in the music. Uh, I'll just call it clever as hell. Oh, it's a text painting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It makes for an indelible chorus. Uh, a long time ago, our, our co-host Will on his great record review site came up with a great term for choruses like this, genetically modified super choruses. He was writing about Midnight Oil, another great band from Oceania, the Convict Belt, far, far away. <laughs> However you want to tie together Australia and New Zealand. But I'll steal that term from him uh, because it perfectly fits a song like World Where You Live. It's a monster of a chorus. It's melodic and exuberant, and it sticks in your head right away. The opening chords are gorgeous, too. Neil does not neglect verse melodies, and that'll be a theme on this album. Overall, it's a tremendous composition and just a perfect radio song. Disappointingly, it only made it to number 65 on the American charts. Effing Ronald Reagan. I'm blaming him. <laughs> That's probably his fault. <laughs> Did either of you guys notice how the very, very beginning of this sounds like Born in the USA? I should have. It, it makes me think of I heard it through the grapevine. Oh, a little bit. It's just the drum beat, and then it's the very similar synth tone playing a similar chord. Yeah, as I said, I don't like the first song on the album very much, but the second song is terrific. The verses are really good, and the chorus is great, and the transition between the two is extremely clever. Like The chorus just crashes into the verse. There's no space in between them at all. In fact, they took out some of the space. Mm-hmm. And those the ascending and descending parts of the chorus, like Ben said, it's not just the vocal melody going down and back up. The whole chord structure augments that melody. So it just it all just goes a little harder than you would expect. And then after the instrumental break, they start the chorus in the middle instead of doing the whole thing, which I just really love. The whole song is just in a hurry in a way <laughs> that works really well. This is absolutely one of the best songs on the album. I don't know why it wasn't a bigger hit in the U.S., if Ronald Reagan wasn't directly responsible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually asked you about that the time signature in that chorus, Amanda, because mm-hmm. most of the song is in 4-4, four, four, but when the chorus starts, there's like there's a single measure of 2-4. And you, yeah. lo- you actually looked up the sheet music, and that's what's going on there. <laughs> and yeah, I agree. Yeah. It makes it sound like the verse is like getting interrupted mid-bar. And it, like the mm-hmm. chorus is already a complete tonal shift from the rest of the song, but that helps it pop even more. And in spite of that, it all sounds completely natural. It's just like an outstandingly intricate piece of songwriting. 
So over the course of this episode, I'm going to be playing several of the demo versions of these songs, which are included in the deluxe edition of the album, because uh, they're the fun kind of demos, like not just unpolished versions of the songs, but like real works in progress that illustrate the songwriting process. And the demo for World Where You Live is interesting because the chorus that we just talked about, it didn't even exist yet. Like Neil had the verse and the middle eight, but otherwise it's just like a shabby little blueprint of the song that came to be. Pretty, but it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It's a great start. But yeah, it had a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it was much more of like a sad guy at a piano sort of song before. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's go on to track three. This one is called Now We're Getting Somewhere. Yeah, we are. I like this song despite the fact that it opens with an accordion, which is the sound you hear as you enter the gates of hell, mournfully wheezing the melody to I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. All the Weird Al fans are screaming at you right now. <laughs> and that they might be Giants fans. Ben, I'm, I'm just going to walk out now. Bye. <laughs> like I said, despite beginning with music's death rattle, this is a fantastic song. Neil comes through with another lovely opening verse melody. Maybe that's a partial answer to all my questions from before about what separates a great melody from just a catchy one. Craftspeople like Neil Finn give a damn about the verse melody, too. The Mm. whole song matters, not just the chorus. Then again, craftsperson Neil also rhymes wrong with wrong in one of those verses, so maybe I shouldn't (laughs) overhype the guy as a Shakespeare with a guitar. The rhythm section on this song isn't Seymour and Hester. It's actually... Former Elvis Presley and Doors bassist Jerry Sheff on bass, and that's Jerry on the Doors' L.A. Woman album, and Jim Keltner on drums. They sound like Crowded House to me, but Elvisier. That's not necessarily better, it's just awesome. Be honest, Ben, you think that that means it's better? (laughs) I do, I do. It's so much better. I haven't even mentioned the chorus. Like so many other choruses on this album, it is just goddamn magical. It's not a few words shouted over and over until you think they're catchy. It's expansive, spreading across several bars, and it's still catchy the entire time. Every time you think the catchy has to run out and the melody's going to veer off into a ditch, Neil just keeps it going. It's a marvel. Now We're Getting Somewhere should have been the top five songs on Casey Kasem the week it came out. 
That was Now We're Getting Somewhere by Crowded House. And now, at number four, a song by Crowded House, Now We're Getting Somewhere. These guys are from New Zealand, and who gives a shit? Uh, now we got to talk about a fucking dog dying? <laughs> that is a real Casey Kasem thing that happened. Really? Yeah. If you look it up on YouTube, he just goes off about an insipid dedication. Yeah, it changes everything wow. you think about Casey Kasem. Yep. This is a god last goddamn time. I want somebody to use his fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record that is uh, that, that's up tempo, and I got to talk about a fucking dog dying. How did I not know about this? I love Casey Kasem. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> Zoinks. I li- I still listen to him on the '70s channel uh, yes! on Sirius XM, broadcasting from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 80s channel does it too. I love it when they replay American Top 40. Well, uh, Amanda, what do you think of now we're getting somewhere? It's fun. Uh, especially that rhythm. I am not positive what genre they're imitating, but that is not a rock beat. And my first guess would be American country music. But since they're from New Zealand, that might not be the case at all. And I thought I might have a case based on the line about the Bible Belt. But good thing I looked it up because it turns out New Zealand has a Bible Belt of its own. Oh. So who knows? You know, the, the bass and guitar do have some country flavor to them, but there's so much else piled on top that isn't country at all that I honestly just find the song kind of confusing. I like mm. it, but I can't get fully on board just because I don't know what it's trying to be. Um, what it actually kind of reminds me of is the the song on the Gin Blossoms album, New Miserable Experience. There's a song toward the end where they tried to be a country band for a minute, too, and that didn't work either. Uh, Cheatin'. That's what yeah, it was called. Can't call it cheating because she reminds me of you. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I personally would buy that excuse, but it's a <laughs> it's, it's a solid effort. Where well, she was tall, her head darkest midnight, but she had a way just like you do to make me feel just like a. Can't call it cheating. She reminds me of you. And as for those musicians, we've talked about Jim Keltner before. He was the drummer for the Traveling Wilburys. Uh, he went by Buster Sideberry for that project. Oh, right. And uh, Jerry Sheff was, of course, Elvis's bassist. And he also played bass on the Sam Phillips album, Martinis and Bikinis, that we yep. talked oh. about a while back. He shows so, up all over the place. Yeah, both of these yeah. guys are everywhere, and I always really appreciate it when they turn up in unexpected places. So I specifically want to talk a little bit about Mitchell Froom as producer, because uh, he's a very, very active collaborator with Crowded House to the point where he's almost a fourth band member on this album. And he actually literally joined the band's recording and touring lineup last year for their most recent album. And oh, wow. uh, he, he, yeah, he and he played a major role in shaping both the sound of this album and the songs themselves. And I think that this song is a particularly good example, because like uh, part of Jerry Chef and Jim Keltner being on this song in the first place is because Froome reached out to them after Crowded House's own rhythm section was having trouble playing a shuffle. And that, at least that's the story that I've heard. And, and they oh. since like learned how to master a shuffle live. I don't want to diss on the Crowded House rhythm section, but uh, like at the time they needed to call in some ringers. Well, that makes sense because like I said, that is a very American drum beat. Yeah. And if it's just not, uh, if that's not the musical well that you're drawing from, you wouldn't be used to, you know, putting that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to go back to demos for a minute, this song is actually an amalgam of two different demos that Mitchell Froome had the idea of turning into a single composition. So the original song that was titled Now We're Getting Somewhere used to have an entirely different verse. 
This isn't now we're getting somewhere. Why are you clipping this, Rich? <laughs> Wait for it. Well, I knew what to say, but the spelling got me all confused. You can't imagine my relief when the telex number came through. Let me out. I should never doubt you, Rich. <laughs> there it is. Wow. And the verse on the final song was taken from a completely different demo called Stranger Underneath Your Skin. Yeah, and it sounds completely natural the way that they grafted it together. You would never be able to tell that those came from two different songs originally. Yeah. 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 And this is the kind of thing a good producer does, like identifying ideas that work and don't work while still adhering to the sonic vision of the band. And I I would say that the final Now We're Getting Somewhere is far superior to either of those demos. And it sounds warm and lively at that. I love that they took the hook from from two different songs and and put them together to make kind of a super song. I wish more bands did that more often. I mean, the example I can think of is Bohemian Rhapsody, which I am sick of. Yeah. But mm-hmm. they took basically three different songs and turned it into just this this Voltron of a song that has just made it last for for decades and people have loved it, you know, for decades. Um, so mm-hmm. I just think it's always a smart idea. Yeah, but in that case, if somebody came to me and said, like, hey, did you know that Bohemian Rhapsody used to be three songs? I'd be like, no. Nah. <laughs> 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 so Neil Neil Finn is better at, at kind of smoothing over the, the the gaps between the songs. Yeah, well, I think it's it. both. Yeah, I think it's both Neil Finn and Mitchell Froom. I don't I don't have like yeah. a lot of like stories from the production sessions, but I think that it was mostly like a back and forth between the two of them. Mm hmm. Well, now it's time for Crowded House's number two hit, Born to Runner Up. Or, as it's also known, <laughs> Don't Dream It's Over. Now I'm towing my car. There's a hole in the roof. My possessions are causing my suspicion, but there's no proof. In the paper today, tales of war and Solid song. What do you guys think? Next. Sucks. That's <laughs> no, great. It's no, so good. I, I'm not going to attempt to be impartial here or clever or insightful. This is where I just babble. This song stuns me. It stunned me when I was a kid. It stunned me since. It's just an amazing composition translated into an amazing record. Everything sounds right. Neil Finn's lulling guitar riff and lyrical guitar solo. Nick Seymour's burbling bass. Producer Mitchell Froome's soothing organ, which is a big part of the song. (laughs) 
most likely Neil Finn's most affecting, towering vocal performance, enhanced with just the right harmonies that envelop you in their moody warmth. It's not soft rock music, it's utterly convincing white soul music. Back to the composition. Even for a spectacularly gifted songwriter like Neil Finn, this is a melody you cobble together once in a lifetime. It's haunting, it's affecting, it sounds like it comes from another, better musical dimension. I wish I could hear it again like I did when I was a kid, when it came out of nowhere and just knocked me over, but I can still hear it close enough to that, and I'm fine with it. As Rich alluded to, Don't Dream It's Over made it to number two on the US Hot 100, and number one in New Zealand, because of course it did. That's huge, and it still should have been huger, because it's a perfect song. No other words for it, at least from me. I mean, there may be intelligent, impartial thoughts to be shared about this song, but I'm not the person to provide them today. Do you all have any? Well, first off, I, the number one that week, because I'm sure people are wondering, was I Knew You Were Waiting For Me by George Michael and Aretha Franklin. I knew you were waiting. I knew you were waiting for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, somehow every time I listen to this album, this one takes me by surprise. Like I'm grooving along with the first three songs and then it's like, oh, hey there, one of the most famous songs ever. <laughs> like this song was so big that it was covered on Glee. Oh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's not terrible. No, it's terrible. I just went in with, with expectations. It's terrible. Just be glad I didn't play the Susan Boyle version. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the Sixpence Nun, the Richer cover? Do we need to? I mean, we did the Glee. I feel like we should acknowledge it because it was a big hit if I'm remembering right, just judging from how often I heard it, but I don't like it. There is freedom within. There is freedom without. Try to catch the deluge in a paper cup. Yeah, this the song has been covered a whole bunch of times. I just, uh, you know, I just specifically threw in the one from Glee to troll you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, I have a bit of trivia. Uh, so one of the people singing those "Hey now, Hey now" is, is Joe Satriani. What? Oh, yes, I saw he was on the Joe album. Joe Satriani. But... Yeah, what? The, the, the guitar I didn't shredder. know he sang ever. He doesn't normally like apparently he and his vocalist Andy Milton were recording in the same building and they got called in to record backing vocals on about half of the album. They're not just on this song. They're also on World Where You Live. And I think basically any time you hear a big chorus of voices, one of them is Joe Satriani. (laughs) Dang. So there's your fun crowded house fact for the day. We're only giving you (laughs) one. Okay. My history with Joe Satriani just got even more fraught. <laughs> I don't think I've mentioned that on the podcast before. Now you can all wonder. Yeah, you're Ooh. alluding to something here. I, I, this yeah. is fascinating. This is not something we've discussed. Oh, you guys knew about it. It was the, the concert I got dragged to where the opener was the glass guitar dude. Oh, oh. <laughs> the glass bass. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it turned out to be a glass net guitar. I was remembering it wrong, but he was awful. And then I had to sit through like three whole hours of and Joe Satriani <laughs> that I didn't want to be there for anyway. Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> well, what do you think of Don't Dream It's Over? Not horrible. <laughs> <laughs>
Everyone likes Don't Dream It's Over. If you try to say you don't, you're a filthy liar and no one should ever trust you. That checks out. I can remember also being completely enchanted by the song when I was little. I don't think I ever knocked over any of my siblings trying to tape it, but I was always really happy when it came on the radio. And there are so many little details that make this song wonderful, but I think my favorite is the last couple measures of the bridge. The buildup and resolution right before that third verse are so well done. I was very confused by the lyrics for many, many years, because why did they want the Piper to die? What what did the Piper ever do to them? But <laughs> until I finally looked them up and realized, oh, the paper today, this suddenly yeah. makes much more sense. Because <laughs> I didn't know they were from New Zealand. I wasn't expecting the accent. So, yeah, yeah everything got a lot more clear. Um this song was used to very good effect in the miniseries of The Stand that aired in 1994. At the beginning of one of the episodes, I think it's probably the second episode, uh, Fran finds a battery-powered record player and turns on the 45 of Don't Dream It's Over, and it turns into a montage of everything that's gone. And, mm-hmm. of course, it's played over the opening credits, which it diminishes the effect because <laughs> almost everything about that miniseries was just slightly wrong. But Mm -hmm. this was the perfect song to use for that. (laughs) What I associate it with is it's used at the beginning in a montage of the uh, the final season of The Americans, the the AMC show about like Cold War Mm. spies uh, like posing as a family, and it's a it's used really well in that case, like because the two main characters have kind of drifted apart uh, uh, by that point in the show, and like in that context, the line "build a wall between us" and the parallels to the Berlin Mm. Wall, it's just so good. That's a great show. I've heard that the music in that show was very well done overall. I still haven't seen it, but I've been meaning to. Oh, you would love the pilot episode, which has like an espionage sequence that's set to Tusk by Fleetwood Mac. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that was the moment where I was like, (laughs) okay, this show is my shit. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. Amanda, I like what you said about the pronunciation, because I think when I was a kid, that led to it being just a little more mystical and impenetrable. Like, what is this thing where I can't even understand the words, but it's just still mm. beautiful. Yeah, I could see how it would have that effect. Yeah, I love the lyrics on this one. So yeah. I, I, I listened to an interview with Neil Finn on the great podcast Soda Jerker on songwriting, which Ben actually introduced me to. Yeah. And uh, and he talked about how he rarely has like a story or a concept in mind when he writes lyrics. He st- instead, he tends to improvise, like almost kind of scat sing phrases that just like fit the chords and melodies until they kind of rest around a central theme. And I think that lends like an emotional truth to his lyrics because like... Uh, well, the line Amanda mentioned earlier, like in the hands of so many songwriters, a line like in the paper today, tales of war and of waste, but you turn right over to the TV page, like would have come up, mm-hmm. would have come off as like judgmental 80s pop star finger wagging, like, you know, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. Type <laughs> stuff. Uh, but the way Neil Finn writes it, it feels like an observation about staying strong in a relationship in the face of a harsh world, like especially paired mm-hmm. with lines just as honest and conversational as you'll never see the end of the road while you're traveling with me. And especially once again, they come to build a wall between us. We know they won't win. Like these are just beautiful lyrics. And the way he delivers those lines really sells it too. that line about the TV Mm -hmm. page. He sounds so sad. He doesn't sound judgmental at all. He's just making a very, making an observation that he's sad about. 
Yeah, well, Amanda, back in our Q&A episode last year, like you talked at length about the difference between good poetry and good lyrics. And I think yeah. that the ones in this song and Neil Finn's lyrics in general are examples of good lyrics, like combined with specifically mm-hmm. with the way he, he delivers them. Yeah, I agree. And, and one last fact about this song. So not to diminish how great of a song this is, but I believe it was a payola hit, which uh, which oh. for those who don't know, it means that money know. illegally changed hands to get it onto the radio. And uh, well, the... The way I've heard it, it's actually kind of funny how it went down. So in the 80s, there were these like so-called quote unquote independent promoters who you could pay to like schmooze around the big stations, like throw around a bunch of coke and turn your song into a hit. And this normally cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. But around this time, the FBI was cracking down on this practice. So Crowded House's manager was able to hire promoters on the cheap at the bargain bin price of just $2,500 a piece, which he put on his credit card. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow so this got the song onto a few stations and it grew into a hit eventually so yeah if that if that's true and i'm not sure like the extent to which this is true it's not the most honest way to go about building your band but at least it was in service of like a, a truly great song if that's how the world had to get don't dream it's over then you know what i'm okay with it <laughs> did did they need it though like where the DJ, the DJs must have heard the song have been like, I don't know. oh yeah, well I'll only play this if you give me lots of money. It's hard. It's hard to say. That's a that's a counterfactual. It's I can't tell you like whether or not it would have just like took off on its own. But I'm glad it yeah. did. Yeah. So let's go on to a slightly lesser song. I, I, I don't <laughs> think that's going to be a controversial statement. This is track five. Love you till the day I die. There's in my head where things is as rich said a bit of a step down after don't dream it's over but then beethoven's fifth symphony would have been a letdown after don't dream it's over like yeah that's that's good it's just after don't dream it's over i was hoping for but but no it's good i can see this beethoven guy going places (laughs) (laughs) so this is nothing against love you till the day i die well maybe it's a little bit against love you till the day i die Uh, Mitchell Froom's 1980s production here is particularly glaring, especially after how subtle he he was on the last song. It's even a little bit garish. I I like what Amanda said about one of the other songs about how there's just a few too many things, and that's true here. As much as the band rocks out and Neil's vocal is earnest and compelling, split between a rich tenor and some wild squawking and squealing, there's not a lot of song here. And the chorus, which I really look for in his songs, it's downright pedestrian. That's okay. Even Beethoven had his eighth symphony. Woof. Kidding. (laughs) I don't know that one. It's probably brilliant like all the others. It's good. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that Neil and the band wanted to rock out on Love You Till the Day I Die. It's an inclination that should be encouraged. I just don't like the song all that much. 
Amanda, do you like this one just as much as Don't Dream It's Over? Even more. <laughs> no, I actually don't like this song at all. Uh, I, I guess screaming four times is one way to count in a song. <laughs> And to be honest, that's actually my favorite part of it because it's so weird. It's the weirdest thing on the album. But after that, this one just really does nothing for me. I can I can appreciate that trying to be funky baseline, but on the whole, this is just way too abrasive for my personal taste. I don't like that clangy short burst of guitar song sound style. It's like uh, Pink Floyd's Shine On You Crazy Diamond only with all the melodic parts underneath those short guitar bursts taken out. And that just doesn't work for me. Yeah, so this one really went on a journey from its original demo. I'm going to play the whole thing because it's only about 50 seconds long. Is that a mandolin? I think so. This isn't Love You Till the Day I Die. This is a different song. <laughs> this is the same song. No, because this one is good. <laughs> they de-goodified it. <laughs> it is love you till the day I die. Ah, he did it again. Oh, he fooled us. And that's the whole thing. I like that. Yeah, interesting. As for the song as it ended up on the album, uh, I like it more than you guys. It's all right. It, it sounds like mm-hmm. kind of a strange amalgam of like NXS and Oingo Boingo, but not nearly as good <laughs> oh. as either of those bands. Uh, it also kind of sounds like Split Ends. Uh, in particular, the song Dirty Creature, which is the opener on their 1982 album, Time and Tide, sounds like kind of like a much better cousin of this song. Sounds like talking heads. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good reminder that at this point the band's sound and style was still a work in progress. So it makes sense that there would be like, you know, some trace elements of Neil Finn's old band hiding out on this album. Mm-hmm. And th- there's also a version of this song on the live bonus disc that came with the special edition of their hits compilation, Recurring Dream. And while it's still not my favorite song in the world by any means, it sounds a lot more at home on the stage than, than it does bouncing off the walls of a studio. It benefits from being stripped down. And it's not as staccato. Mm-hmm. Still pretty staccato, but not quite mm-hmm. as much. But don't believe it. I will love you till the day I die. I like that transition there. I 
still don't like it, but okay. Yeah, well, this does strike me as one of those songs that like benefits from a live setting, like the imprecision, the mm-hmm. immediacy, the energy of the crowd. Like I still don't like the yeah. song particularly, but if I were there in the crowd and they busted this out, I would probably like jump up and down and get excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. With that, it is time for the second big ass hit single from this album. Track six is called Something So Strong. the same guy producing this as the last one yeah Here's another song with a melodic and immediately ear-catching intro. It's a classic on the basis of the chorus alone, so as always, I appreciate the extra effort put in to make it a complete song, a classic from beginning to end. Let's talk about that chorus. It's another ascending melody. Finn even drifts upward into a falsetto for a moment. It's pretty and immediately memorable. It's a hit chorus, no two ways about it, but it never panders and it never punches you with its catchiness like a Katy Perry song. It's a gently <laughs> It's a gently memorable melody punched up by a rousing swinging production. All three band members get to show off here including the often overshadowed Nick Seymour on bass and Mitchell Froom's trademark organ fills in the spaces between the instruments with just the right texture and volume. It's so tasteful which makes me wonder who produced that last song. I've read anecdotes about Tom Petty writing the song The Waiting and about David Bowie scratching out the riff for Rebel Rebel and how they both just knew that they'd pulled something truly special out of the ether. Not just a hit song, but something for all time. For all time. I can picture Neil Finn feeling the same satisfaction after composing something so strong. It's different. It's better. And he has to have realized it. It's like when God created Saturday. Like, yeah, those other days were good. Wednesday, solid day. But Saturday, I really did something with this one. Something so strong is Neil Finn's Saturday. Now I'm trying to remember what was created on Saturday. Something so strong made it to number seven on the U.S. Hot 100. And damn right it did because it's a perfect record. Well, you mentioned like Neil Finn feeling satisfaction after composing something so strong. He did compose it, but it was also co-written by Mitchell Froome. And part of that is that like, well, a reason for that is so this is another one that went through quite a transformation from the demo, which I believe dates back to the late split ends days and get ready because you're barely going to recognize this one. This is something so strong. Yeah, I guess it's more similar than Love You to the Day I Die. (laughs) It's recognizable. It's a different melody, but because it's the same words. 
So apparently Mitchell Froome got the co-writing credit because he added a chord to it, which I'm going to guess is that gigantic (laughs) G chord that opens the chorus. But don't quote me on that. I don't actually know music that well, (laughs) even though I run a podcast about it. It's a big change. Yeah, definitely. Because even beyond that chord, like given the role he played in shaping the album in general, it feels like he took the original and like molded it into something completely new. And again, I don't know how much of this was him and how much back and forth there was between him and Neil Finn, but whatever the case, like the the song they ended up with is just such a warm, comforting song. It has like this warm glow that I love. And I don't like it as much as Don't Dream It's Over, but that's a tough competition right there. And this one's a a good follow-up single. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what do you think? Uh, This is the song I thought was Nick Kershaw. And I think I was mixing it up with Wouldn't It Be Good. I like that Nick Kershaw song. The chorus is really the only thing it has going for it. I can never remember how the verses go when it's not actually playing. And something so strong is memorable the whole way through, even outside of that hella catchy chorus. My favorite bit is that little hesitation right before the chorus and again halfway through it. I think that happens mainly in the bass. It's a pretty busy bass line most of the way through, but it takes a breath right there. And then the drum hits just a little harder when the bass comes back in and it gives the song a a really interesting little hitch that lets you know that something really great is coming. But the big problem I have with this is it's so short. It's less than three minutes long. Like there are plenty of times when less is more and you don't want a good song to overstay its welcome, but this could easily be 30 or 45 seconds longer and still be great. I want more of this song. There's just not enough of it. But you can always just put it back to the beginning and play it again, which I often do. I will say that this yeah. is a case where I kind of ding the album for the 80s production because usually I don't really I don't mind the production, but hmm. in this song it feels like there's like a constant war being waged between like Mitchell Froom's Hammond B3 organ part, which is nice and warm, and those synth. twinkly synth lines. Yeah. yeah. Ding ding like it's like they're yeah it's like there are two snakes that are coiled in battle and one of them is like (laughs) covered in glitter like decorated like a lisa frank binder or something oh my gosh well having owned more than one lisa frank binder in my life that is not a negative for me that's true Yeah, I, I can see why why you wouldn't like that contrast, but it really works for me. I love the production on this. This is the, the kind of 80s production I really enjoy. And honestly, even if the only thing Mitchell Froome had actually contributed were those organ lines in the chorus, that would earn a songwriting credit in my book. They're so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to track seven. This one is called Hole in the River. Shoes beside 
The song is a co-write between Neil and friend of the band Eddie Rayner. The downcast lyrics actually reflect a real tragic circumstance in Neil's life, his aunt's suicide. Quote, That actually was a rare occasion where I sat down and had a story to tell. I'd just been told over the phone by my father that his sister had committed suicide. I was playing the tune on the piano before he rang me, and then he rang me, and I just repeated it, basically to the melody. Unquote. Thus, the lyrics about a hole in the river where his auntie lies. He sings, I hope she was dreaming of glory, miles above the mountains and plains, free at last. And that's beautiful. The whole mm-hmm. thing is delicate and empathetic, moody and interesting, and only a truly talented songwriter could have written it. But I don't know if I love it or even like it that much. It doesn't stay in the awesome pop song wheelhouse that makes this album special to me. It's like if they included a really striking gargoyle statue as track seven on their pop album. Like, cool gargoyle, brilliantly sculpted, but why is it on this music album? Make with the choruses. Cool gargoyle, bro. I want to hear a crowded house song and feel like I am deliriously floating above Auckland on a cloud. Hole in the River, for all its virtues, doesn't do that. I hear it and I'm trudging through Auckland's grimy slums. It's interesting, but it's less fun. And you got to watch out there because those Kiwis will cut you. <laughs> Does Auckland have grimy slums? I don't, I don't know. actually know. <laughs> or clouds. I have no idea. I've never been. I'm sad to say. I like this a lot. I think Ben, you're right that it's a big tonal shift from the rest of the album, but it that doesn't bother me. Um, moody 80s synth pop is a style I really enjoy, and I think this is extremely well done. Uh, the only part I don't think is real successful is the instrumental break. <laughs> Like, I get what they were going for. I think it's, they're trying for a bit of suspense while she's making her decision. And I think that was a good idea for the song. I think it's a very clever compositional trick. I just don't think it's very successful. Uh, it ends up kind of sounding like a montage or chase scene from a cheesy 80s cop show. And the song just <laughs> deserves better than that. But for the most part, I think this is wonderful. Well, regarding that instrumental break. So I have one last demo clip to play to illustrate a very... <laughs> Very wise omission they made when arranging the final version in the studio. Ooh. Here it goes. Okay, wait for it. Oh. Uh, yep. No. The band deserved at least one gleeing after putting that out. 
<laughs> yep, Neil Finn originally used this very sad song as an excuse to bust some rhymes. <laughs> I was going to say, was that the Beastie Boys that just turned up? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess to, one thing to remember is this was a time when hip-hop was new and rock bands thought that experimenting with rap was still a good idea. And Crowded House had <laughs> yeah. the good sense to edit it out. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. the same was not true for Rush. Yeah, this was during that time when a lot of pop songs had rap breaks in them. Like Opposites Attract was around now, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a whole episode of the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast called Tryin' Raps about like rock songs oh. that tried to do that kind of thing. <laughs> Uh, as for the final song, I've read people compare it to Split Ends, but for me, it feels more like the kind of like ominous, brooding, dark ballad with a slow build that Tears for Fears would have made, uh, especially mm. on the songs from the Big Chair album. And there's even a specific moment that reminds me of them. So my favorite part of Hole in the River is the false ending around the three minute mark. <laughs> And that bit sounds a lot to me like when the Tears for Fear song Head Over Heels transitions into a live reprise of their song Broken. Yeah. All right, flange. <laughs> oh, so good. And if you want to hear us talk about songs from the big chair, subscribe to our bonus feed. We talked about it a couple of years ago. I have another Tears for Fears comparison coming up, actually. Me too. <laughs> and I like both Tears for Fears and anything that sounds like Tears for Fears. So I like this song. <laughs> Outvoted. Okay, well, let's go on to track eight, which is Can't Carry On, because they didn't keep calm, obviously. <laughs> oh, I look Neil Finn's voice. Yeah. Once again, I applaud the rock and roll instincts here. The driving beat, the heavy twisting bass line. Not because I love when the band does that, because Crowded House was never too convincingly rock and roll. They rock fine, but nothing special like. But because I appreciate the spark, the oomph, any force that keeps the band from devolving into drippy soft rock. It's a habit we should encourage. So if you should run into Crowded House back in 1985, encourage them to keep rocking out. This is a good song, even a really good song. It's got energy and a catchy falsetto chorus. It's crazy likable. It isn't boring for a second, and it grows on me every time I hear it. I just think that as really good, catchy, should-be-hit songs go on this album, it's just a little bit lesser than. 
I just never notice it because the other songs on the album are so big, but it really is growing on me every time I hear it. It's kind of great. Yeah, I think it's great. I'm sorry. I've been an idiot. I should have appreciated this song more. I'll try to make up for this. Well, first of all, what is that hilarious Muppet shit in the beginning? (laughs) That intro is wild. I really like fake outs like that and because the rest of the song doesn't sound anything like it and I like the rest of the song too. I think the bass line is really great, grabs your attention, Um, but I agree with Ben. This is an excellent song and I enjoy the hell out of it, but I feel like it's missing something. I don't know what. Uh, Maybe it's just that the melody and the chord sequences are just a little bit more predictable than they are in the best songs on the album. Like, it's a little bit more normal than, say, World Where You Live. Mm -hmm. The Can't Carry On just doesn't ever take you by surprise. Yeah. And that's really only a, a negative on an album that is surprising as this one is. Anywhere else, it would be perfectly great. Well, I'll tell you the one thing that this song is missing, and that's Mitchell Froom, because he didn't produce oh. it. Mm. Yeah, it was produced by Eddie Rayner from Split Ends, who Ben mentioned in the last song, because he co-wrote it. Uh, oh, when, maybe and, that is it. Yeah, and that accounts to me for why it sounds so much glossier and slicker than the rest of the album, even though there's there's plenty mm. of gloss on the other songs, but this is like a special kind of 80s gloss that it mostly avoids. And I'm, I'm not going to play the demo this time, because compared to the ones I played earlier, it sounds more like a finished product that could have been played on the radio. Uh, but the main difference is that they added like a ton of studio bells and whistles like some tremolo effects some like uh, angelic synth choruses some multi-tracked vocals here and there like it's a really overstuffed song in terms of production like none of the restraint Mm -hmm. you get with Mitchell Froom but I I still really like it it's grown on me a lot in preparing for this episode and uh, so in terms of its production I'm going to positively compare it to this podcast's favorite overproduction punching bag which is Robert John (laughs) Mutt Lang (laughs) so we've well established that Mutt Lang polished off the rough edges on Def Leppard's album Hysteria until all that remained was just like a completely frictionless surface but another extremely 80s tendency of his was that he would overstuff an arrangement with like so much BS that you could barely make out the song underneath and I'm gonna play the intro to the song Hello Again by The Cars which he produced It's just everything. Yeah, as far as the cars go, that's like Homer Simpson's car that he des- he designs in that one episode. <laughs> <laughs> they should all sound like that. And Amanda and I also talked about Heartbeat City by the cars on our bonus feed. We just keep finding reasons to plug that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to cycle back to Crowded House, uh, well, so Can't Carry On to me is this kind of production ethos used for good and not for evil. Like, that, there's a lot going on. You might say it's too much. Not all of it is strictly necessary. It's all flash. But, you know, it all fits together into an impressive spectacle. And it, I mean, despite all of the gloss, it isn't garish to me at all. I think to Amanda's point before, I've been thinking about how it's different than the, the truth truly, truly great songs on the album. I think it's missing a verse melody. Like, I think the chorus is is oh. really good and up there, but the verses are, like you said, just more predictable. I love Neil Finn's falsetto in the chorus on this song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so for track nine, Neil Finn reaches into his back catalog to give us a little split ends history lesson, and with the song I Walk Away. About my first real six streets. Girl. <laughs> that, that, that was going around a lot. I, I caught the summer of 69 thing, but I didn't catch Jesse's girl. Yeah, good catch. Also a little bit of, I don't want to lose your love tonight. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole, like, genre of early 80s song. Yeah. other album this would be the absolute standout track and yet on this album what what about abbey road would it be the absolute standout track on abbey road well okay amanda on on abbey road it wouldn't be the standout track i mean abbey road is a great album i'm just saying that wait wait, wait, what about exile on main street are you saying that this would be the best song on exile on main street Ben, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Well, well Rich, my, you, you make a good point, and you're right. On Emperor Exile Tomato on... Ketchup by Stereolab. <laughs> now we're pushing it. I'm, I'm just saying that this is a great song, and that on most albums, most albums, not all albums, this would be the best song. And yet, on Crowded House's debut album, it's somewhere in the middle. As Rich talked about, uh, I Walk Away is actually a split-end song that Finn had included on the band's final album. It's a great song in that version with all the energy and melody there. It's a little too 80s synthy for my taste. Um, also, I, I seem to be alone in those tastes. one's good, but I prefer the more straight-ahead rock version on this album. Paul Hester absolutely kills it on drums here. Now, there are a few familiar-sounding riffs here. The scratchy intro to the song sounds a lot to me like Summer of 69 by Brian Adams. Yep. I got my first real six-string Bought it at the five and done Played it till my fingers bled Was a summer of 69 which came out around the same time, so I don't think anyone was stealing from anybody else. And Rich also brought up Jesse's Girl, which is true. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed. It ain't hard to define. Jesse's got himself a girl and I want I also hear the riff from If I Needed Someone in there after the chorus. Yeah, just a little bit, but I heard it too. Apparently in New Zealand, spring is fall, summer is winter, and other musicians rip off George Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, it's probably an homage more than anything. 
Like the other great songs on this album, I Walk Away has a beautiful chorus that just crashes into you and not in the icky Dave Matthews way. (laughs) Neil Finn sings so strongly, uh, showing off just how rich and gorgeous his voice is. And I'm glad that that Rich keeps pointing that out because it's, it's an important point to make about Crowded House. I like pointing out when voices are rich. Yeah. <laughs> you and your branding. Would you say always. his voice is something so strong <laughs> it would carry us away? I like it most of all when Neil is pushing himself, as he does here. And yet, on this album, to me, I Walk Away is like the fifth best song. On other albums, it would be, well, I've learned the hard way not to speculate about that. So Wait, Ben, I- what about Introducing by DJ Shadow? Who? What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I've I've named an entire genre of music you've never heard of. (laughs) DJ? What about Beethoven's Eighth Symphony? Would it be the best song on Beethoven's Eighth Symphony? It mops the floor with Beethoven's Eighth Eighth Symphony. (laughs) I love love track seven of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. (laughs) You'll just have to trust me, this is a fantastic song. Well, I think I slightly prefer the Split Ends version, actually, but I will say that as much as Split Ends worked within a style of music that tends... Uh, to to be much more my thing than the type of music Crowded House makes, which you know means you know synthy and eighties and herky jerky. I've never really felt fully satisfied by any of their albums. Uh, now, uh, there is no one single Crowded House song that I like as much as Split Ends as Six Months in a Leaky Boat. this album we're talking about today is more consistent than any split ends album I've heard. Like uh, this was good enough to be the first single from the final split ends album, but on here compared to some of the stunners we've heard already, like Ben said, it's like maybe like the fifth, sixth or seventh song at best. It's just an album track and uh, Mm -hmm. it's still really good. And I do think that anyone listening to this episode who hasn't heard split ends should go check them out. They're very much worth listening to, but crowded house definitely feels like a musical progression for Neil Finn. And I think that the song being on this album illustrates that. It's interesting to me that the back half of this album has so many interesting songs on it. Cause I I'm more used to eighties pop albums being really front loaded Mm. But this one is almost backloaded, if anything. Like, the, the big shining stars are in the first half, but I feel like the second half is more consistent. I mean, it doesn't have those same highlights, but it also doesn't have any real clunkers on it. And again, with I Walk Away, I think it's missing whatever Crowded House secret ingredient it is that makes their best songs soar. But this is still really, really good. I like it a lot. Yeah. Great album track. So, Ben, I have a question for you. What do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> Veggie pepperoni and cheese? Yes. Track 10 is called Tombstone. Good guess. Good guess. 
Look at all the plans I made Falling down like scraps of paper I will leave them where they lie To remind me From the past the rumor comes Don't let it keep dragging you down This is a brilliant song, although as Rich brought up, all it makes me think of is pizza. I'll do my best to ignore that. <laughs> it's just hard because I've never ignored pizza before. The beginning of this song features another beautiful strummed chord sequence sung by Neil at his best and creamiest. Neil wasn't neglecting any aspects of songwriting. It all mattered to him. That intro verse leads into a yearning, tension-building pre-chorus, and that leads into another tremendous chorus. Just an amazing radio sing-along banger and potential hit single with a killer Paul Hester drum beat, somehow about a tombstone. This is the kind of catchy, melodic chorus that most songwriters would be lucky to come up with two or three times in their careers, and Neil Finn buries it in the back of an album and gives it lyrics that will basically guarantee it never makes the charts. Why? It might be colossally bad judgment that caused the suits at Capitol Records to facepalm en masse. Or Neil might be flexing, saying, just so you know, I can do this. I'm just not doing it right now, but I can. Renegotiate my contract, and then maybe I'll write a huge hit song that isn't set in a graveyard. But <laughs> maybe when the music is this good, the subject matter isn't as big a deal. Crank it up and sing along about tombstones at the top of your lungs. Amanda, what do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> well, see, this makes you guys think of pizza. It makes me think of Val Kilmer saying, I got two guns, <laughs> one for each of you. Ooh. What do you <laughs> think of Tombstone, the song by Crowded House? I love it. I Great. Oh, those synths, which I noticed just now sound a lot like Springsteen's Downbound Train. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great, great backing track, great melody, great lyrics. I think that tombstone image means a couple of different things. The first thing that occurred to me is that it's a reference to Jesus. Uh, when they rolled away the stone in front of his tomb and found that he wasn't there, the lines, let the saints appear and make a new man out of me, would confirm that reading to me. And then later on, there's a reference to the Lone Ranger, which brings to mind Tombstone, Arizona. And the Lone Ranger was in Texas, but it's all one big wild rest, right? <laughs> and I wouldn't expect someone in New Zealand to necessarily know the difference between Arizona and Texas. So it's all good. It works. <laughs> but I I I really like those the the two different uh readings of the word of the tombstone image. It's I don't think I'm saying that very eloquently, but I this song is just fantastic from front to back. That was a that was a really good analysis, Amanda. Yeah. 
No, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was all ready to write this one off, but uh, well, first off, like I, I like what both of you said about it, but also doing some digging around online on various forums, I came across a lot of fans who rated this as their their favorite Crowded House song ever oh, yeah? of all of their songs. Yeah. And this made me listen to it a little more closely and it's really grown on me. Like in particular, I read one fan who was talking about like uh, singing along to this at the top of his lungs, like, you know, at 2 a.m. on the subway, which is just the most beautiful image. <laughs> It probably annoy a lot it. of people, but whatever. <laughs> but yeah, apparently this is a very rarely played live track in their catalog because I've read that, you know, Neil Finn himself doesn't think much of it. But uh, wow. I really like this particular arrangement of the song from when they played the Warfield in San Francisco in 2010. And I wish I'd gone to go see that, but I didn't. Listen to the howling of steel A face betraying no emotion Neither at home Not like you never had a chance to be Wild and free yeah. Oh, that voice Rich, you're totally right Really good Yeah, great arrangement Yeah, it's really good And I, I can definitely hear this as It's the kind of sleeper song that if you're a real fan, you know, you don't want to say that Don't Dream It's Over is your favorite, but but Tombstone's a good pick. Yeah, you're right. This is the kind of song that like if I were a huge fan of Crowded House and Neil Finn, I could imagine forming like a really deep bond with it. Like this is my song. And and like like Amanda was saying, Neil Finn's lyrics are as great as ever. And I I love that opening line. Look at all the plans I've made falling down like scraps of paper. I will leave them where they Mm -hmm. lie to remind me. Like, that's something I can definitely identify with as someone who loves to plan, but is surrounded by the scraps of, like, old projects I've abandoned. And luckily, Discord and Rhyme is not one of those. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is a... I Like I said, I didn't think much of it, but I think this song is just really beautiful. It's it's become one of my favorites on the album. Mm-hmm. Nice. And now it's time to bring the album to a close with the next installment in Crowded House's hit compilation series. Now that's what I call love. <laughs> <laughs> Track 11. Is that our next mini sewed project? <laughs> what the hell is this song? <laughs> Tombstone would be a, such a great closer. Yeah. Yeah, it would. If Crowded House is going to record a song that is not as good as the best songs on this album, as Rich alluded to, then I'm glad it's like this. Upbeat, rocking, even on the edge. The alternative is often slow and competent to the point of being sleep-inducing, so I'm glad this one is the way that it is. Paul Hester is having a great time pounding out the beat. Nick Seymour gets slightly funky on bass. And Neil Finn stretches himself vocally, even reaching for a falsetto that's fun for us to hear, but that sounds painful for him to sing. Mitchell Froom pulls out all the weird 1980s owner of a lonely heart sound effects. And unlike unlike on Love You Till the Day I Die, to me at least, they fit here. They're a lot of fun. The chorus, I hear it as an attempt to recreate the effect of Now We're Getting Somewhere, with a call and response that kind of washes over you like one wave after another hitting the beach at Surfer's Paradise. It's ambitious, this one's just less successful. Even if it's not great, it's never boring, and this is a band that could slip into boring when they weren't in the right mood. 
In fact, it always strikes me as being a shorter song than it's a three minutes and 30 seconds actually is. It never loses me. So if there has to be a slightly less than inspired Crowded House song, I'll take one that's duded up with energy and enthusiasm the way that this one is. Yeah, that's one vote in favor of that's what I call love. Uh, Amanda, <laughs> what about you? I think it's fine. <laughs> um, it's kind of another Summer of 69 situation because the intro of this one reminds me a lot of Bruce Hornsby's song, The Long Race which is an album track on The Way It Is that came out in the same year, 1986. I get those, those were just popular tropes that year. And uh, earlier, Rich mentioned uh, the Tears for Fear song, Broken. I didn't know he was going to do that. And I have in my notes right here that this sounds like a rewrite of the Tears for Fear song, Broken, on Songs from the Big Chair that came out in 1985, <laughs> which, as he said, we've talked about on our bonus feed, as well as the Bruce Hornsby album I just mentioned, and the Gin Blossoms album I mentioned before, and Heartbeat City <laughs> by The Cars. And I swear we're not doing this on purpose, but you can find all of these episodes at patreon.com slash discordpod. Yeah, our bonus feed is full of bangers. <laughs> yeah, the song is kind of a weird note to go out on. Like, it's a, it's yet another song I would call closing credits music, but like, it's not, <laughs> it's not the big triumphant grace note of a closing song that ends the movie. It's more like the second song that plays during the credits after the first one has faded out, and, and most of the audience has already <laughs> left the theater, and the ushers yeah. are sweeping up the spilled popcorn. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like Crowded House or Split Ends or like any direction Neil Finn's music would go on to take. It's just kind of a weird musical dead end. The main comparison I can think of is the rhythm guitar and bass line feel very inspired by Nile Rodgers and Chic, mm. uh, which was a very common oh. influence in the 80s. And paired with Neil Finn's kind of declarative vocal delivery, it kind of reminds me of the band ABC, who were much better at this kind of thing. That says that boy meets girl. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the album. Ben, do you have any closing thoughts on Crowded House, Neil Finn, and the entire country of New Zealand? <laughs> this is the first episode I've hosted where I don't absolutely love the artists that we're covering. Joni Mitchell, Stevie Wonder, Bruce Springsteen, the damn monkeys. These are artists that I have loved for decades. Artists who have album after album that speak to me and remind me of important points in my life. Artists I will ride or die for. Hopefully just ride because the other thing seems extreme just for a musical act I enjoy. <laughs> Where Crowded House is concerned, though, I love their debut album as much as I love any individual album by those artists I mentioned. But it does trail off after that. I have nothing against their other music, I just haven't explored it much, and to the extent that I have, I like it fine enough, but it hasn't moved me the way that this album does. My knee-jerk reaction is that it's a little drearier and a little less great, but there's still a lot of crowded house music I haven't heard, and for as important as Split Ends is to the crowded house story, I don't know any Split Ends songs outside of the one that we clipped earlier. You can call this laziness and negligence in researching my episode, maybe, but it's sincere laziness and heartfelt negligence, and that means something. <laughs> this is nothing against Crowded House. They seem like a swell bunch of blokes, and I hope I fall harder for the rest of their music one day as much as I've fallen hard for their debut album. Now, as for that rest of their music, 
Crowded House stayed a big-ish deal through the 1980s and 1990s. Their next album, 1988's Temple of Low Men, only reached number 40 in the U.S., but it topped the charts in New Zealand, knocking out the previous number one record, No Albums Currently on Chart. (laughs) 1991's Woodface, on which Neil's brother Tim was briefly a band member, only made number 83 in America, but once again it was number one in New Zealand, knocking from the top of the charts Thriller, which had finally reached New Zealand after nine years at sea. In 1993, Crowded House's album Together Alone made it to number 73 in America, which, while a letdown from the heights of their first album, it's honestly not bad for a band full of who from where, Predictably, in New Zealand, it hit number one after local megafan Rolf Peters bought the 10th copy of the album, earning him a souvenir picture with the band. You know, I have a good friend in New Zealand who sometimes listens to the podcast, (laughs) so I I apologize on Ben's behalf (laughs) to our New Zealand fan. I think there's only the one. (laughs) And then the band broke up. As of 1996, there was no crowded house. We know looking back that this didn't last forever, but if you're living through it, you have no reason to think that it isn't all over. We thought that about David Bowie and Michael Jordan a few times. It's bleak. You think that that chapter of a story that you love, or in this case really like, is over for good. Even worse, the band's story took a tragic turn in 2005 when seemingly irrepressible drummer Paul Hester who had been suffering from depression, sadly took his own life. It was a shock then, and it's still raw now, for fans like me, and certainly much more so for his bandmates and his family and friends. Rest in peace, Paul. You are awesome. In the years after the band broke up, Neil Finn recorded a few solo albums, including some with his brother Tim. All the trash and the treasure All the trash and the treasure All the pain and the pleasure Taste the edible flowers Taste the edible flowers Scattered in the And then in 2006, Neil Finn and Nick Seymour did what nobody thought they would do again. They reformed Crowded House. They're incomplete, yes, no matter how many new members helped them out, like Mitchell Froome uh, that Rich talked about before, but it's better to have Crowded House in the world than not. Sometimes, if very rarely, you can go home again. The reformed Crowded House has since released three albums, and they'll be touring Australia later this year. I haven't heard their new albums, so I can't say whether the experience is more akin to Bowie's last few albums, which were great, or to Peter Jackson face-planting back into Middle Earth, or like Grover (laughs) Cleveland becoming president for a second time, which by most accounts seems to have gone fine. Bizarrely, in 2018, Neil Finn was invited to join Fleetwood Mac after Mick Fleetwood fired the wildly talented but admittedly kind of douchey Lindsey Buckingham. Neil Finn isn't an unhinged guitar virtuoso like Lindsay, but he's an important creative voice in his own way, and Mick made a solid choice. 
Neil is still a member of Fleetwood Mac, though the band hasn't recorded any albums during his tenure. Being happily married, I don't believe he's entered into a will they or won't they, did they or didn't they, oh my god, they're going to kill each other, parasitic relationship (laughs) with anyone else in the band. But you never know, because being in Fleetwood Mac has a weird effect on people. Just wait. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't heard any recordings of him performing with Fleetwood Mac, but his voice would be a really good substitute for Lindsey Buckingham's. Yeah. Yeah. Cycling back to Crowded House and their debut album, which for me is the nucleus of all this, whatever else Crowded House did or didn't do, their debut album will always be one of my all-time favorite listening experiences. The banger quotient here on this album is just insanely high. Now, not every album needs to be the equivalent of a greatest hits album, nor should it be. That could be exhausting in the wrong hands. Most artists, even at the top of their instrumental and vocal and creative and charismatic powers, where even their smallest moments are intriguing and entrancing, they just can't keep up that level of sustained hook writing over the course of a full album. But in 1985, Neil Finn and his band came as close as anyone has to pulling it off. With just a few exceptions, this album is potential radio hit after actual radio hit after potential radio hit. And they're all played with power and verve, and the intelligent lyrics are sung by one of pop music's most compelling voices. It's thrilling. If you don't know it, I hope you go check it out. Yes. So we were talking about this just before recording started, but it's been nice to talk about an album that's, you know just a bunch of good songs Mm -hmm. like crowded Mm -hmm. house are just regular human beings (laughs) making music and it's honestly kind of the vision we had for this podcast when we were first starting out and i love how ambitious we got really quickly but it's it's still been nice to just kick back and talk about something that isn't like a gigantic pivot point for music or part of this wider (laughs) historical narrative it's just an Mm -hmm. album and a really good one yeah i like that amanda do you have any closing thoughts on on crowded house uh well there have been many episodes of this podcast where i get pulled in to talk about an album that i didn't already know and that has generally worked out really well for me and this is another case where that that's been a net positive in my life (laughs) this is i mean like you guys said it's just an album full of really good pop songs and i'm i am here for an album full of really good pop songs and it's also really fun to talk about just some really good pop songs and not, you know, like this giant emotional statement or you know, the invention of a new genre or something, you know? Yeah. There is a very important place in this world for albums that are just a bunch of good pop songs. Well said. So, Ben, what recommendations do you have, uh, either from Crowded House and or the wider world of Neil Finn? As I've alluded to, I, I wish I knew more about the rest of Crowded House's music. But I've just had a hard time diving into it. There's this tendency towards soft rock that I've talked about during the episode. The parts of Neil Finn that weren't rock and roll started to win the battle pretty soon after Crowded House's debut album. Also, the downside of having so many slow, minor key songs is that when the song isn't absolutely brilliant, you're left with a sort of morose listening experience. Those are my experiences, at least. Ah, you say. But what about when they come up with a somewhat dreary soft rock production that's attached to a really great song? And I say, how the hell did you get on our podcast? But (laughs) if you had a point, which the jury is still out on, Exhibit A would be 1991's Weather With You from the band's third album, Woodface, which Rich brought up before. It's soft rock, it's a little dreary, and they still knock it out of the park in cricket, I guess, not baseball. 
It's a co-write between Neil and his brother, Tim Finn, who had joined the band at that point, and they sing it together beautifully. They bore us a bit before they get to the chorus, but man, that chorus is just otherworldly. What makes it different from and better than any other catchy chorus you hear on the radio? After a whole episode, I still don't know. My words are failing me again. There's just something that makes this one better. I guess it just has to speak for itself. Well, there's a small boat made of China It's going nowhere on the mantelpiece Well, do I lie like a lounge room lizard? Or do I sing like a bird released? Everywhere you go face a lot it's pretty front-loaded but that front half is like almost a non-stop burst of some of the best crowded house songs ever Mm -hmm. like besides weather with you you also have it's only natural fall at your feet tall trees and four seasons in one day but uh, instead of Woodface, I'm going to recommend Together Alone, the final album they released during their original run. And, you know, Ben lightly dissed it earlier, but I think it's their best album. Because uh, for this album, they added keyboardist and multi-instrumentalist Mark Hart to their lineup. And a lot of fans credit him with adding some extra layers and textures to the band's sound. And I'm going to clip the amazing slow burn Private Universe, which is one of the greatest songs the band ever recorded. That is a great one. Got any recommendations? Well, I don't know any other Crowded House albums, but people who like this one would probably also like Nick Kershaw, who did not sing something so strong, <laughs> but he did <laughs> sing a bunch of other good songs. And his album, The Riddle, is full of booty 80s synth rock. Uh, the title track is by far the best song on it, but I like the whole album plenty. And I think there'd be some overlap between Crowded House fans and Nick Kershaw fans. This is a Valentine and just. 
co-host and friend Chris Willie Williams was going to be on this episode, but he's feeling under the weather. So I'm going to pass along his recommendation because he loves Crowded House and Neil Finn. So Will writes, quote, Neil Finn's songwriting after Crowded House's initial disbanding has drifted further and further from traditional catchiness, for better and worse. His first solo album, Try Whistling This, is an outstanding snapshot of him initially contemplating straddling that line. Neil's always worked hard to ensure his songs sound as laid back as they do, as though a land surveyor could amble through the music, casually nudging the property line stakes this way or the other, and it wouldn't matter much, even though there's secretly a complex, sturdy structure just out of sight. Try Whistling This offers plenty of that for existing Crowded House fans on grabby songs like She Will Have Her Way and Last One Standing. But Neil also starts to experiment a little more with taking his hands off the wheel and appreciating the rush you feel when things start drifting just over the rumble strip on rickety highlights like Astro and Sinner. See it anyone got my eyes, got my face Sing it everyone, got my nose, got my blood beyond Crowded House to the wider world of New Zealand music, I'm going to recommend a couple of compilations. So the first is a 2002 compilation called Nature's Best, which is a collection of the 30 greatest New Zealand songs of all time, as chosen by a panel. Incidentally, it, in- it includes four split-end songs and two Crowded House <laughs> songs, so this, this compilation is 20% Neil Finn related. Uh, but the whole thing is worth hearing, and I'm going to clip the 1969 track Nature by Formula, which often gets ranked as the greatest New Zealand song ever. Falling leaves, I pick my way slowly Talking aloud, eases my mind Sunlight filters through, I feel my head is bursting So full of thoughts, I thought What am I going to do? I need some thoughts that I For a less populist, more ragged set of New Zealand songs, I'm going to recommend the 1985 collection Tuatara, released by Flying Nun Records, which is one of the seminal labels in New Zealand independent music. There's just tons of great stuff on there from bands including The Clean, The Bats, and The Tall Dwarfs.
And as for how to find them, Nature's Best is available for dirt cheap on Discogs.com. And Tuatara is a little more expensive, but that one's also on Spotify. And Lord is from New Zealand. I like Lord. I also like Lord. And that brings our episode to an end. So what are we covering for the next album? For anyone who's been saying the albums you've been talking about have been good, but can you cover more wild, experimental, polyrhythmic krautrock music with an idiosyncratic Japanese vocalist? And my answer is, I don't know. Can we? <laughs> har har. <laughs> Next episode, Phil will be talking about the 1971 double album Tago Mago by Can, and I wish him the best of luck with the entire second disc. So you have that to look forward to next time. And remember, everywhere you go, always take the weather with you. Yeah. See you around. Look at all the plans I made Falling down like scraps of paper I will leave them where they lie To remind me Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Crowded House and other albums by Crowded House and the wider world of Neil Finn at your local record store. And you can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist of this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at Discord Pod on Twitter for news and updates. Editing is by me, Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. Pepperoni and cheese.